morning. Uh, I'd like to welcome those of you who could not get off work to go on vacation the week of spring break. Welcome. Glad you were here. I told the first service people the same thing and then told them they had gotten up to come to church in the rain. They were also what is known biblically as the elect. So welcome. Glad you are here. We are going through the book of Ephesians. If you have a Bible, Ephesians chapter two, verse one and following Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10, one of the great gospel passages in the new Testament. You take that with Romans chapter three, Titus chapter three, you have great insights to what Paul believed was the central salvation message of Christianity. We call that message, the gospel. The good news of what God has come to do for us, to save us. Last week, we looked at the first part of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, verses 1 through 3. And in those verses, Paul paints a very stark, dark picture of the human condition. Okay? That sin has left humanity ruined and in desperate straits. Okay, so last week I talked about that and talked about how you use passages like that to contrast the greatness of the salvation message of the gospel. So in, in, to use it as a kind of a framework, we understand that the darkness that humanity experiences in sin is in contrast to the great light of the gospel of what God has come to do. If you want to think of it visually, I know some people are, are very visual people and, and need to take ideas like that and give a visual reference. Think of a painting, right? A painting's beauty is largely determined by how you contrast the colors. Uh, one of my favorite Renaissance painters is a guy named Caravaggio. Caravaggio does this excellently. He uses light and dark to frame one another. You can see this is a picture of Abraham sacrificing Isaac or about to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, the light and the dark contrast each other. They bring each other out. They are used for that effect. And that's exactly what you're going to see in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. In the beginning, Paul points out the very real problem of human sinfulness. And he paints it out in very direct, very stark language. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that's pretty harsh language. It's pretty direct. Saying that all of humanity, this is true of all of humanity, in their, uh, in their natural form, so to speak. And you break it down and you begin to see it point by point, some pretty harsh language. That humanity, because of sin, is dead in those sins and trespasses. That they are dead in those things when they are thought of by God. That in that state, they follow the prince of the power of the air. Or that's just a, an idiomatic way of saying, you follow and obey Satan. In this form. And it says that they are by nature or by their very essence children of wrath. Meaning that by their very nature they are detestable to God and children of wrath. Now that's, that's pretty stark and pretty harsh, right? It's indicative of what sin does to, human, to humans. 
how we are before God in our sin. But as I've already said, this is a great gospel passage. If that's the dark, the light begins in verse 4. And in verse 4 and 5 it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You can already see the great contrast here, the light and the dark. You can even see that Paul begins to flip metaphor. Remember, we were, the very first verse says, dead in trespasses. Here, we are alive together with Christ. He's even beginning to flip metaphors. And we understand this rapid distinction by the introduction of the word but. But, these things were true, but God. And here, here's kind of the problem, right? If you take these, this one verse, if you take this one passage and you just read this one passage, it's going to leave you with some questions, some very difficult questions. Uh, it might seem pretty straightforward to someone who's been exposed to the Bible quite frequently to understand this passage, but you don't realize the amount of presuppositions you're bringing into the text and all the explanations you already have built through your life in a church. But see, this seems kind of random because you're talking in, verse, in three verses. You are objects of wrath. You are followers of the devil. You are dead in your sins, but God loved you. Wait a minute, how can you say God loved me when I was a child of wrath? That doesn't make sense. Those things don't balance, right? One of the great theological errors of our time is the error of subjugating God's justice to God's love, saying that God's love is more important than God's justice. That's false. Both have to be in equal display. They have, God has to be perfectly just and he has to be perfectly loving. So how do we hold those in tension? The gospel does that. And it begins for us to understand these things by trying to presuppose this idea. Start with this idea that this text puts that God, past tense, loved us. Even while those things were true, while we were children of wrath, while we were following the prince of the power of the air, while we were dead in our trespasses, God loved us. How? How do we put together a God that is that loving, but is also just? And how do we put all of that together into a theological painting that makes sense, so to speak? Well, the first thing to realize is that the understanding that God loves his people is New Testament wide. It's not just a Pauline idea. You can turn into other New Testament authors and find this picture. For example, in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, John says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Past tense love. We didn't love God. We were following the course of Satan. We were children of wrath. But while we were those things, he loved us and sent Christ to be, most misused word in the New Testament, propitiation. If you have a New Testament here, uh, it may have the phrase sacrifice of atonement. 
That's not necessarily a bad translation, but it can be. Because what Christ did on the cross is greater than an atonement. It's greater, it's richer. It is an atonement, but it's also greater, right? In baseball, a single is a hit, but so is a home run. They're different. There could be the same thing, but qualitatively different in some ways. Christ's death on the cross was an atonement, but it was also a propitiation, all right? Here's my propitiation metaphor that I have been speaking here for 12-something years, okay? I want it hammered into your brain. I want some of you to speak it on your deathbeds, and nobody to understand what you're talking about, okay? Here's the distinction. I'm in my car. I'm dri- or my wife's in my car, her car. She's driving. Drunk driver runs a red light, hits the van, kills my wife, kills my sons. At some point, an insurance company is going to come to me and say, here's the money for your van. Here's the money for your wife's life insurance. Here's the money for your, your children. Here's for pain and suffering. Here's your money. We're done. That is an atonement in a sense. But is everything between me and the driver okay? Has that money made thing right between us? No. There is still injustice there. There is still wrath there. See, the insurance company can't come to me and pay me, and then the driver who killed my wife and sons turn around to the court of law and say, hey, my, I paid for his van and his wife's life, so I'm good, right? And a judge go, yeah, you're fine, good. No, that guy's gonna go to jail. A propitiation is an atonement that also makes things okay. Only God can do this. So Christ's death on the cross did pay for my sins in a one-to-one sense, but it also made things okay between me and God. That's why Paul can confidently write in Romans 8.1, therefore there is now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because their sins have not only been atoned for, they've been propitiated. God has no wrath toward the person who's in Christ. None. All their sins are forgiven. The the price has been paid. So God is totally just. Sins were punished in Christ. He was wrathful toward Christ. That was paid. To forgive me is not to wipe sin under the rug. It's to say justice was accomplished on Christ. Someone paid for this sin. It's a key concept in Christian theology. Because otherwise, you're going to have to at some point take God's justice and put it under his love. And that you, you've, you've made God into a cartoon character. You, you've turned him into someone he's not. He's both of these things. And the point that both John and Paul are trying to bring out to us is that this God loved us before. Right? We have loved because he first loved us. What is the passage trying to get across to us? If you look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you see dead in trespasses, following the prince of the power of the air, by nature children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he, past tense, loved us. 
that Christ loved us before these things, that God loved us before these things. And again, in order to understand these passages, we have to understand them in their total context, right? There's an old saying, never read a Bible verse. Because you can make one Bible verse mean whatever you want it to mean. But when you put it in the context of the whole chapter or the whole book or the whole New Testament, then all of a sudden what it means becomes pretty set, right? If I came to you and I said, Romeo and Juliet is the story of a seriously misguided pharmacist. What would you say? Some of you'd be like, I don't get that joke, okay? Literary people are going, ha, 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 that's silly. Of course it's not, right? But if I took three pages out of the book, out of the play, I could tell you, oh, it's a story about a, uh, a pharmacist who makes a bad mistake. That's not all it is. It's obviously way more than that. It's a story about a sword fight, all right? When you are reading this passage, you have to put it into the fullness of its context, especially its context in the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians, Paul has already set up his understanding for this past tense, loved us in Ephesians 1. And in Ephesians 1, verse, or uh, in Ephesians 1, uh, verses uh, 3 and following, he says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So when you read Ephesians chapter two, and it says you once were dead in your sins and you once were following the course of the devil and you once were a child of wrath, you are meant to have read that understanding that before any of that happened, God had chosen you. Now, I understand when we read passages like this, especially with our Western mindset, we immediately throw up roadblocks to it because it sounds deterministic to us and make it sound like our, our lives don't matter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let me go ahead and stop you right there for a second and tell you this. It does not matter if you are a Calvinist or an Arminian. However, you come up with a concept of this notion of predestination it doesn't matter how you got there. That God knew who his people were before the foundation of the world is rock solid biblical text. So what I'm talking about this morning are the implications of that. Not of how you get to that. That's a whole different set of sermons. But that God knew his people before there was an atom of matter is a foundational, rock solid, indisputable biblical truth right here chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God knew his people. Those people in the New Testament are called the chosen ones or the elect. The group of that people are called the called out ones. The ones who have been called out of the world. That Greek word is ekklesia. We translate it in your Bibles as the word church. 
The church is the called out ones, the people that God knows are his. They will come to him through faith in the New Testament times, specifically through faith in Christ. And those people are to know that from before the foundation of the world, God chose them. He chose them in love. He predestined them to be holy and blameless before him and to be adopted as children. That's some mind-bending stuff, right? And it is a foundational presupposition of the Christian life. It's, 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 It's almost required thinking. Because to know when I am in Christ... That God has decided from before he created anything to shower me with grace and mercy and love changes how I view this world and how I view what happens to me. See, don't mistake me saying that if you are in Christ, it was God's purpose to shower you with an easy life or with riches or with health. Right? I mean, who is more loved than Jesus? Nobody. Right? The beloved. That's Jesus. That's not me. If in your Bible, right above the word beloved, you wrote Greg, erase that <laughs> and put Jesus. Okay? That's Jesus. Jesus' life, if you were to view it, would look very hard. Right? Turned on by his family, betrayed by his friends, lied about, murdered an innocent man. Are you following me? I mean, it would look very hard in some ways. God's purpose is not ease. God's purpose is holy and blameless. And he can accomplish those things through very different ways. Uh, Many of you know... Uh, in my life, for example, a few years ago, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. All right? Uh, and it was a life-changing, totally life-changing thing. Um, I was uh, Mr. Grind It, Work It, I Can Make It Work, full, full bore guy. And I have to relearn my whole life. I can't do that anymore. I can't go full bore anymore. And, you know, we hadn't had kids at that point. We had to seriously think through, how are we going to do this? Can we do this with me being sick like this? We had to undergo fertility treatments because the medicine I took, we couldn't try to have natural childbirth because I, was, I had taken some chemo drugs. Um, it, changed, it changed everything, how we had to look at our lives. Now, in that moment, I have a couple of choices, and I will freely admit to you, I try to admit my failures to you, because they are many. I can't do them all, because that would be the whole sermon every week. <laughs> but there are times when I'll go, I am a pastor, I, I'm a pastor, I work hard for your people, I preach your gospel, I try hard, and this, this, this is not fair. That's in me all the time. Um, but... That's my flesh speaking. That's not my heart. My heart, my true self says, I know you have a reason and I trust you. Right? God works all things for what? The good, those who love him and who are what? Called 
according to his purpose. So I know God has a purpose. God had a purpose for my sons in my rheumatoid arthritis before they were born. He had a purpose for my wife through my rheumatoid arthritis before I met her. She had a, he had a purpose for you, the church I would serve at, before I was ever on staff. Maybe no one can take me full bore. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> I don't think so. But I know that God has loved me from before the foundation of the world. He showed me Christ, called me to him, redeemed me. While I was a sinner, God's mercy toward me was at work because he had decided by his own will. God has said before there was an atom or an Adam, I will love this one. In their sin, I will love them. They are mine. And you can rest here today in that knowledge. To know that in Christ, you are God's beloved child. When you look at this and you see these past tense words, he has loved us. And you go to the next verse in verse six and seven, it says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You notice that past tense? Anybody in here seated in heaven right now? You're like, yeah, in heaven it ain't cold and rainy. And I don't have to look at you ever. Paul is not theologically a dunderhead. He knows these things are not our full reality yet, but he refuses to let us think that they aren't some of our reality. That in God's mind, not only has he loved you from before you were, even while you were in your sin, but in God's mind, he has already seated you with him in heaven. The Bible talks about the church as being saints. Anybody in here a saint? My saint? I may be the patron saint of sarcasm, but the Bible tells me I am a saint. Why? By God's decree. Chosen, forgiven, a holy race, a royal priesthood. That's you. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is God's purpose that in the future ages when the kingdom comes in heaven eternally, you will be showered with grace and kindness forever. Hallelujah. Thank you. That God's purpose is for me forever to put on display grace. That there people will say, Peter, how did you get in here? Did you dig a tunnel from hell? <laughs> and me to say, I am saved by Jesus's grace. I am here based on nothing I did, nothing but him saying, I save you. Now, do I have to repent of my sin? and put my faith in Christ in this world? Is that how it looks? Yes. If you're here and you say, okay, well, I'm one of those. I'll see you there. 
That's not how it works. In this world, we repent of our sin, we put our faith in Christ, and it shows that this purpose of God is at work in us. But we notice here that the fall is greater than, that the restoration is greater than where we fell from. Not just dead in sin, not just now alive to God, but adopted children. In 1 John he says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because he, we shall see him as he is. There's a day coming Believer, when you will be, to borrow the phrase, conformed to the image of Christ. Does that mean you're going to become a little God? No. It means in your heart and in your soul, you will be conformed in character to God. When I talk about heaven, okay, when we talk about a resurrected life on a new heaven and a new earth, what am I looking the most forward to? Being freed from a body of death. Yes, I look forward to the day that I no longer am sick or that allergies don't plague me or that I could eat as many chili dogs as I want. It's not and get heartburn, right? <laughs> the thing I look forward to the most in heaven, what I can't wait for, what I long for is the day that my heart is freed from the shackles of sin and temptation. And the first moment that my eyes or whatever I have opened in heaven after my death will be the first moment that I am free from claws of evil in my mind for the first time. I long for that. I yearn for that. If God leaves me here one more day and that means fruitful labor, amen. But I am ready to go right now. Now don't pull out a gun and shoot me. (laughs) If God's purpose was right now, then amen. Amen. The adoption of as a son, to be raised up, to be seated with him. So that in the coming ages he can show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And then from the most famous gospel passages there is in the Bible, you probably learned it in Sunday school when you were little. For by grace you have been saved. Have you watched grace flow through this? From chapter one, from before the foundation of the world. He predestined you for grace. And for by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. I know that for many of you in here and me, many days, it does not feel like God has from eternity past decided to bless me with love, grace, and kindness. Things can be very hard. And what I'm going to ask you to do as we take a few moments of silence is to come before God with this knowledge that the God who foreknew you, who chose you and predestined you from before there was an Adam, is not going to change his purposes when you come to him and ask why. 
God is big enough for you to come up to him and say, why is this happening? Why is, what is going on? What are you, what is your purpose here? Now we'll give you one word of warning. The Bible does tell us when we come before God to watch our mouths because we are dust. And what it means by that is not that we can't go to God and go, why is this happening to me? But we never go to God and accuse him of evil. Not even in our emotion do we confuse God, accuse him of evil and blaspheme him. But I want to take a few moments for you if you're here to do one of two things. One, if you're someone who just wants to come before God and say, thank you for the love you have purposed toward me and praise him, please do so. But maybe you need to just come before God right now and say, I know this is in my life and it is causing me to question my love, your love for me. And I pray right now that you can just grant me the peace to know that in Christ, through Christ, your love has been purposed toward me and you have a reason for what's going on. Let's pray together. Let's take a few moments in silence and then we'll be dismissed. Father God, we proclaim the excellencies of your name, the greatness of who you are. And Father, I pray that you show us glimpses of your eternal purposes toward us. You grant each one of the believers that hear this, the people that come to you through Christ, small moments of understanding the love you have purposed toward them, of their position seated with you in heaven, that you, they are your children. They will dine at the table. They will not be cast out for sins that dog them, but the enemy seeks to confuse them because they are children of his enemy. God, I pray you grant us peace to know your heart toward us so that even if we are persecuted and lied about, that just like Jesus, we will submit ourselves to the one who knows how to hold our future. Father, I pray that your love in Christ would abound to us so that we know a pursuit of holiness is a pursuit of the family fortune. And in everything, God, let us be a praise to Jesus Christ, our brother, our older brother, our savior, and our king. And we praise you, Jesus, who though you were God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made yourself nothing, 
became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that we could bow our knees and proclaim that you are Lord. I praise you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.